This is the sound of thousands of people cheering and ululating while four military helicopters cross the sky above them. The helicopters are camouflage green Oryx helicopters and below them, hanging on thick wires, are four South African flags or rather, four new South African flags. It's the 10th of May, 1994. Nelson Mandela is being inaugurated as President of South Africa. I, Nelson Mandela, Not only the crowd, but the entire world is watching. To be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. It is a new beginning, a fresh start for what is now called the Rainbow Nation. What most people do not know is that while they are watching the helicopters putting the South African flag on display, they are also watching something else. They are watching the corruption of apartheid seamlessly being carried across the sky into the new South Africa. Because the helicopters carrying the flags are not really South African helicopters. They are actually slightly modified versions of French Super Puma helicopters bought illegally under apartheid to oppress the South African people and fight wars in Angola. Of course, the South African government did not act alone. They were aided by international banks and arms companies. This episode is called Freedom for Sale and is made in collaboration with Open Secrets. My name is Neo Rakajani and Neroli Price tells the story. South Africa, all of us were told to let the past be the past. Apartheid was over and it was time to move on. But almost daily protests, headlines revealing corruption and our shameful status as one of the most unequal societies in the world has shown us that it's not working. And so people have started to stir up the past because they believe that this is the only way to replace our rotten foundations and build a house that all South Africans can live in. It's Saturday the 3rd of February 2018. I'm in a place with barred windows and a terrible past. The former woman's jail at Constitution Hill in Johannesburg. It doesn't feel much like a prison here now. The lush lawns and red brick walls surround an airy oval atrium framed by white columns and with passageways leading off it like spokes in a wheel. If it wasn't for the prison bars, the building would seem like a library at an old university. On a summer morning like this, it's easy to forget that these walls have witnessed decades of pain and suffering. 
Some of the many struggle heroes who've been locked up in here include Barbara Hogan, Fatima Mir, Albertina Susulu, and Winnie Madikizela Mandela. But the people gathering here today do so voluntarily, and they're here with a purpose. Thank you very much. I would like to start by reading an opening statement on behalf This of is the of voice of Zach Yacoub. If you think he sounds like a judge, you're right. He was the justice at the Constitutional Court, which is just a few meters away from where he now sits, introducing the first People's Tribunal on Economic Crime in South Africa. That's the official name for what looks like a trial, sounds like a trial, but isn't really a trial. This is not a court of law, and we are not here as judges. This is a tribunal which has no legal standing or authority. It should be a trial, but so far the state has had no appetite for prosecuting the well-connected corrupt elite that are the subject of this tribunal. And so, the crimes of the powerful, such as four decades of corruption in the arms trade, go unpunished. And this is where the tribunal comes in. By presenting real witnesses and real evidence, the goal is to make it as hard as possible to keep ignoring these crimes. I'm not here as an independent observer. In fact, I've been part of organizing the event. But I've brought my recorder along to document the process. Okay, we are rolling. And so the People's Tribunal, in some, to some extent, is uh, is certainly not going to be a way of um, ensuring that someone is sent to prison or fined. Um, we can't anticipate doing that. But what are we doing? We really are saying that um, we are saying as the people it is possible to hold um, those to account in corporations and in within government, within political parties and elsewhere to account for their crimes. This is my boss, Henny van Feren, who is also the director of Open Secrets where I work. We'll bring together experts on issues of banking or prosecution. There are civil society activists who've witnessed the impact of um, of economic crime on ordinary people's lives, um, uh, access to health care and antiretroviral medication, through to witnesses who themselves have seen the corruption unfolding. If I might, I would uh, introduce the witness briefly before he does so himself. Um, but what are all these witnesses here to talk about? The arms industry and the not only the oppressive role it played in sustaining the system of apartheid, but in the manner in which the corruption in that trade has undermined democracy in, in, in a very fundamental way uh, in South Africa over the over the past uh, over the past two decades. Together with the activists at the tribunal, we will revisit three major scandals beginning way back during apartheid and continuing until today. Let's start with the illegal arms trade during apartheid. Vlerik is a very different kind of business school. Everything we do is built around you. We turn theory into practice. This is a somewhat cheesy infomercial advertising a Belgian business school. And while it might seem misplaced in a story about apartheid corruption, there is a surprising connection. It starts in 1953, when the Belgian politician and banker, André Vlerik, founded what became the Vlerik Business School. 
because during apartheid, he was the chairman of a bank called Credit Bank. And in the late 1970s, when the world was finally waking up to the reality of apartheid, Blerick was still a die-hard supporter of the regime. The federal government has time and again declared that it condemns South Africa's discriminate treatment of its people on grounds of race and color. To make a long story very short, international sanctions were imposed on South Africa. And this meant, for example, that nobody was allowed to sell weapons to the country. But still, the apartheid government was armed to the teeth, fighting wars all over Southern Africa and crushing resistance at home. But how do you buy weapons when it's against the law? You need to do it in secret. And this is where Vlerik's bank comes into the picture. Because as one of the most important banking connections for the apartheid regime, it helped channel money between Pretoria and arms dealers across the world through a complicated web of shelf companies and bank accounts in countries like Panama, Liberia and Luxembourg. So let me begin with the story. In the late 1970s to the mid-1980s, there was a comprehensive and increasingly tight set of regulations internationally preventing and prohibiting any association with the South African government in respect of the trade and development and maintenance of arms and weapons. This is law professor Benita Meyersfeld giving evidence at the tribunal. She says that this story sounds like a James Bond movie. Governments of countries such as Belgium, France, Portugal, were able to utilize private entities to enter into engagements with banks that would very elegantly set up shelf companies. What are shelf companies? Shelf companies are companies that are institutionally set up but have no real purpose, have no real structure. So the company would be set up and you would have dozens, if not hundreds, of these companies set up across the world where a corporate actor in the global north, say in Belgium, would take funds channel them through these front companies or shelf companies, which would ultimately land up in South Africa. Those shelf companies were utilized in a way that would allow the South African government to channel funds back into the, the countries I've just identified, who would then on-sell arms and also arms components. Although Luxembourg in particular was a hub for these illicit transactions, many other countries played their part. Henny's research has shown that although many countries officially supported the sanctions, in secret they were helping their regime buy weapons illegally or turning a blind eye to dodgy deals. The list is long, but includes France, England, the USA, and even Russia and China. All five members of the UN Security Council that had voted to pass the sanctions against South Africa this is what the tribunal in Johannesburg is about. Revisiting dodgy deals that have never been dealt with. And it's not just about the money. The effects of these economic crimes were felt dearly. Henny argues that without the help of banks, arms companies and middlemen, the apartheid regime would not have lasted for as long as it did. These big companies acted both immorally and illegally, but they have not faced any consequences. 
we can't allow the many criminals who profited from crimes during apartheid or during the arms deal or a range of other scandals that seem to be overshadowed by exactly what's happening today and tomorrow, we can't let them get away with it. Well, Sydney, um, what, what is clear from... This is lawyer Hermion Crenier, whose job it has been for a long time to catch these bad guys. Is that these um, corrupt networks that accompany arms deals um, have been around for long before um, democratic governments have come into power. And all that happens if we don't address those um, networks and hold account- accountable people who have benefited um, through those networks, new players are just replaced. Hermian has fought corruption professionally for decades. And she says that because the past has seeped into the present, there has been very little political will to go after the corrupt. It's so much easier to take the chance on working with them again because, well, nothing's happened to them, so nothing will happen to you. And, and that's almost true because uh, we, we become so overwhelmed um, that we don't know where to begin, we don't know how to approach it. So, you know, it's, I think it's really important to have an understanding of how those networks operated in the past, how they uh, persist today. And internationally, the law has been painfully slow to prosecute big international companies. And this is also why people like Andre Vlerik have not only never been punished, but continue to be celebrated as leaders in society. For example, by having business schools in Belgium named after them. You've become part of a worldwide network of more than 17,000 Vlerik alumni supporting your career. And when you face your next challenge, you are always welcome back here at Vlerik. So get in touch and find out how Vlerik could help your career. The next chapter in the continued history of weapons and corruption dealt with at the tribunal happened in the so-called new South Africa. When Nelson Mandela was sworn in as South Africa's first democratic president, everybody thought that the dark days were behind them. But as the helicopters flying the new South African flag sped across the sky, deals were being struck in shadowy back rooms. And sooner than anybody imagined, the past would come back to haunt the young democracy. What has been so tragic about our young democratic history is not that we are exceptionally corrupt or any more corrupt than any other countries, but rather the speed with which the democratic South Africa adopted the very tawdry global norms of politics and economics. This is author and activist Andrew Feinstein, He was also an ANC Member of Parliament. In 2001, he resigned after the government refused to investigate alleged corruption in the 1999 arms deal. But let's just back up here for a second. What exactly was the arms deal? The arms deal was um, a decision in 1999 to spend around 60 to 70 billion rand on weapons that the country didn't need and has barely utilized until today in return for up to three and a half billion rand of corruption, of bribes. And this arms deal was the point at which our very young democracy lost its moral compass, the point at which corruption came 
to infuse the ruling party and the democratic state. The consequence of the corruption in the new South Africa was not soldiers with guns in wars and townships, but that doesn't mean that there were no consequences. Activist Zaki Ahmad lived through that time and recalls the horrific AIDS epidemic that ravaged South Africa in the 90s. And he has an idea of what the billions of rands could have bought. The money that was used in the arms industry could have been used to fund a billion condoms that would have led to people not getting infected. The money could have been used to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV. The money could have been used to ensure rape survivors had access to treatment. That did not happen. I see the Eiffel Tower lights are shining today. These are the code words that Jacob Zuma allegedly used to accept a bribe from a large French arms company that's now called Thales. Their website boasts of social responsibility programs in South Africa, but the reality is darker. The company first sold weapons to South Africa during apartheid, weapons used to fight the ANC, the same party that they quickly went into business with when the former freedom fighters had moved into the union buildings. And this French company effectively bribed President Jacob Zuma um, to the tune of half a million rand a year, which they paid him in order to protect the interests of the company against any potential inquiries about corruption that it had participated in in the arms deal. Monday morning at the tribunal, one of the people who was in the room when many of these deals was going down suddenly appears on stage. If I might, I would uh, introduce the witness briefly before he does so himself. Um, our witness X is Mr. A.J. Suklal. Um, until now, we've kept his identity secret. The man, so far only known as Witness X, was revealed as a whistleblower. We heard from a gentleman known as Witness X until this morning, who turns out to be A.J. Suklal, um, a lawyer who has worked both in private practice and in government service in South Africa, who was present as much of the corruption around the arms deal and other corrupt transactions actually took place. So these are really, these are uh, very detailed, absolutely explosive evidence. Hence, there was no prosecution uh, foreseen against Mr. Zuma. AJ Suklal took part in the wrongdoing and is now coming forward to confess and to shed light on the dark corners of the past. But that doesn't mean that today doesn't produce its own opportunities for corruption and elites who are ready to cash in. This brings us to the final act of this story. Well known to most South Africans, as state capture. What you're hearing in the background is not the music your uncle put on his latest homemade video. No, it's actually the soundtrack to a promotional video for the arms company you own. In the video, ground-to-air missiles and radar systems are being advertised to potential clients around the world. And yes, you heard right, you. 
or at least the South African state owns Danel, the company that made this video. Danel sells weapons to governments, for example Saudi Arabia, currently fighting a brutal war in Yemen, and Azerbaijan, whose government, according to Human Rights Watch, continues to wage a vicious crackdown on critics and dissenting voices. In South Africa, Danel has recently been in the spotlight for other wrong reasons. State capture. Where, for example, the influential Gupta family has used political connections to steal from the South African people through taking control of state-owned companies like Danel. Danel struggled today to explain why it entered into an almost half a billion rand deal with VR Laser Company while it was reported to be under financial difficulties. In this case, Danel started a joint venture with a company called VR Laser. The goal, they said, was to sell weapons in Asia. It was not only strange because of the name, but also because VR Laser has little experience in the business of weapons. And as it turned out, none other than the Gupta-connected Salim Essa owned the majority of VR Laser. Whether we are captured or not captured, which obviously the answer is a no, no, no. Again, international arms trade became a way for corrupt business people and politicians to steal from ordinary people. And as most South Africans will know, Danel is only the tip of the iceberg. Vast amounts of money that should go to ordinary citizens disappear and basic services suffer. And the effects are felt throughout the country. This is activist Zukiswa Vuka from the hashtag Unite Behind movement. Linking what's happening where we stay in the townships, in the rural areas, in farms with what's happening there. State capture is not a foreign language. It's something that you leave. It's something that we can be able to say, this is what state capture. For her and other activists, state capture feels personal because, like the rest of us, they also believe that we had left the past behind. In my work that, that I've been, um, that we've been, that we've been doing, it was easy for, 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 for people to see who the enemy was. We know that the enemy is the white person. But now when the people that we've elected, people that we can, black people, same as us, are the ones who are con continuing with the legacy of corruption, it, it becomes frustrating. And it's in this climate of despair that a People's Tribunal was created to show that people can organize and do something when the state fails them. Having heard all the witnesses at the tribunal, there's no question that corruption is older than the ANC government. But there's still time to hold the criminals of the past to account. This is researcher Mbongiseni Butelezi. The moment is now because um, there, there's something that can be done while some people are still alive to hold them accountable for things that they did in the apartheid era. And while he doesn't want to let sleeping dogs lie, he also points out that we mustn't overlook the crimes of today. But at the same time as we do that, uh, it's also absolutely essential that we don't forget that things are being done now that are quite detrimental. But Mbongiseni has another point that sometimes gets lost in the news cycle. Uh, it's not the color of their skin that makes people corrupt or not. This story is about how elites abuse their power and steal from us all. And how this is true regardless of skin color, religion, 
and political affiliation. It's absolutely essential, I think, to deal with the racist narratives. Uh, the racist narrative, uh, if, if just outside of state capture, it's become linked to state capture very strongly. But outside of state capture, if you think of the narrative of incompetence of state officials, of um, the non-delivery being as a result of incompetent officials, the big public narrative um, from black and white people is that that has come about as a result of uh, the post-apartheid government, the black government taking over. We've got to deal with that na uh, narrative and one of the ways in which we deal with that, of course, is to uh, do this process that goes back and forth, that deals with what happened under apartheid and with that corruption that deals with it now. This week, in the former women's jail, activists of all ages stood up against the people profiting from injustice. On the 14th of February this year, as heart-shaped chocolate boxes were unwrapped for Valentine's Day all over the world, the President of South Africa got up to make an announcement. To the decision to resign as President of the Republic with immediate effect. And a few days later, news broke that there were arrest warrants out for his partners in crime, the Guptas. But as of yet, nobody has been sentenced. And the events outside the women's jail seeped through the bars as a reminder of why everyone was there. In other words, the fight isn't over. And it never will be. But neither is the spirit that leads ordinary people to take on struggles that seem impossible. Or, as Bishop Malusi Mpumwana said at the closing of the People's Tribunal. The prophet Amos says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. May this stream never, ever go dry. You've been listening to a Sound Africa podcast made in collaboration with Open Secrets. This episode was produced and edited by Neroli Price with help from Rasmus Bits and Lars Overland. And my name is Neo Rakajani. If you like this episode, share it with the people you like. Oh